Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hi and welcome to Radiotherapy. And how good does it feel? The simple pleasures in life, actually sitting down for a cafe-bought coffee, having mates around, starting to think about planning a summer holiday. Ooh, it really doesn't get much better. It doesn't matter if it's pouring with rain, does it? The simple act of being out there in the world, of being social is, well, for me anyway, bloody terrific EpiPen. When <laughs> when doctors' kids have problems, <laughs> who do their parents call? Well, medicos, I know, they all call paediatrician extraordinaire, Dr. Lexi Frydenberg. She basically knows everything about everything. And in the rare case she doesn't, well, she knows where to find it. Lexi is a paediatrician at the Royal Children's Hospital, where she works clinically and as the education coordinator for the Department of General Medicine. She is also a host of the immensely popular podcast, RCH Kids Health Info, about which she will be talking to us today. Dr. Janet Towns is a sexual health physician at, where else, but the Melbourne Sexual Health Centre, where she is known as the Syphilis Queen. And a reason for her royalty status, well, just one reason really, is that Janet recently completed her PhD on modern ethical syphilology. I knew I was going to stuff that up. And part of her project was uh, published in the Lancet Infectious Diseases Journal, which is high praise for a paper. It, uh, that this particular paper highlighted the increasing rates of oral and anal treponema pallidum. And treponema pallidum is the syphilis bug. Yep, Epi's nodding at me. Uh, Janet has just begun her postdoctoral research on syphilis at Monash University and will be speaking with us today about the disease known as the Great Pretender. Maddie McCarthy is an associate at law firm LK who in her final year of university wrote her honours thesis on the regulation of sex robots. In the Law Society of South Australia Journal, Maddie and co-author Professor Tanya Lehman explored this Absolutely fascinating area. The ethical, legal and societal implications of sex with robots are legion. And on the show today, Maddie will be walking us through some of them. Joining us will be psychologist and future Nobel Prize winner, Dr. J. Spot, mark my words, as well as a nurse who can make you feel better just by being in her presence. It's true, nurse EpiPen. It's going to be a fascinating show today and it's great to have you all with us. So stick with me, Dr. Mal. And the team for the next hour of radiotherapy. Good morning, Nurse Epi Pen. Hopefully, this is going to work. Morning. 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 I can. Hear, I think you're on. You? I think you're on, and you're Am in. I on? Are you on, and you're in? And I'm also going to say good morning to Doctor G Spot. Good morning, everyone. How you're going? Ooh, I love it when technology works. Sometimes it is very exciting. You know, you're beaming to Not us. Not as exciting as our show, though. It's going to be an absolute corker. Ah, uh, yeah. Look, I, I love your enthusiasm. You know, Sunday mornings, whenever I come into the studio, I just feel you know, I get this 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 rise of what is it, serotonin? Is that the thing? Yeah. And dopamine. Yeah. I just it's feel because I haven't good. been to sleep, Doctor Mal. I'm just so wired. Are you out partying? Is that why? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> hey, um, we've got a such a corker show. Hey, just before we um start the show, what did you guys do last night for um? 
your first Saturday night of, you know, been out there? Um, I read a fascinating paper by Dr. Janet Towns called Trepanoma Pallidum Detection in Lesion and Non-Lesion Sites in Men Who Have Sex with Men, Early Syphilis. It was a really great Good night. Read. A great night in bed reading this stimulating article, which I have to say is congratulations to you, Janet Holmes. What a fabulous um, publication it is in the Lancet Infectious Diseases. I reckon yeah. you would be the – I'd lay money on this. You'd be the only person in Victoria who did that. How about the world? The world. <laughs> I sat in bed reading a paper on syphilis during uh, the work time. I couldn't be going out. Yeah. And uh, what about you? Oh, geez, but you're in South Australia, aren't you? I am, but I still went out in solidarity to a restaurant <laughs> and then I read about sex robots. So oh, I feel like oh, because I, I have nothing else to do on a Saturday night and I thought sex robots, great topic, it might even appear in our show. So I thought I'd go for it. What a coincidence. You were reading about sex robots I and we're going to have a segment on sex robots. Yeah. It's unbelievable, about, isn't What about it? you, Dr. Mal? What did you do? I went out to Dr. Shivago's house where he, <laughs> he cooked us fish. It was fantastic. It was just the best. Anyway, we better head on to our first guest. It is uh, Dr. Lexi Frydenberg. Good morning, Lexi. Good morning, Mal and and Dr. G Spot. Thanks for having me. Look, thanks so much for coming on to our little radio show because we know you've got a huge podcast following. So it must feel weird to, you know, come down to our level and speak to a couple of people like us. It's nice, but I wish I was in the studio with you. Life's a lot easier in the studio. Uh, um, Dr. Lexi, would you like to advertise your podcast? At this golden oh, moment? Oh, we can start with that. So, well, I might give a bit of background how it started or why we decided to do a podcast, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I um, am a co-host with Dr. Anthea Rhodes and Dr. Margie Danchen of a podcast called the Kids Health Info Podcast done at the Royal Children's Hospital. And it was an idea that we'd come, um, come to many years ago when we realised a lot of people like to learn in different ways. So some people like reading and we have these great health info fact sheets, but a lot of people like learning visually or, or auditory. And so we decided podcasts were all the rage, so let's get on the bandwagon. Um, and we came up with the concept to really try and share good quality health information with parents. Um, we approached the hospital. We managed to get the most amazing producer um, who's part of the World Children's Hospital Creative Studios team, Simon Pays, and it's been you know, a huge amount of fun. As as you know, um, producing radio or podcasts can be a lot of fun, particularly when you have an amazing team. So we uh, get together every fortnight, record in advance episodes um, about different content and have different experts on the show trying to share information about children's health issues. And mm-hmm. um, we've covered, uh, you know, a lot of sort of medical issues that are very popular on our fact sheets. Um, the most popular fact sheet is actually penis and foreskin care, which always surprises me. Um, also, mm. vaginal care is very mm. um, popular for parents. Mm. Um, but we're also really trying to cover the common topics, asthma, cough, croup, wheeze. And because we're paediatricians, we love focusing on development and behaviour. So, We've done a great episode on ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, um, autism uh, we're recording this week. Uh, we've done a deep dive into anxiety. 
And um, for those of us on the, on the show today with adolescents, um, we've also done an amazing episode on vaping where I learned so much about it, which was really relevant, having teenagers myself, um, but also, you know, eating disorders which are on the rise. Mm. And we've done a few bonus episodes um, on COVID to go along with the Facebook Lives that RCH is doing. So, yeah, the Kids Health Info podcast, we're in season three and we're absolutely loving it. And, we, and the way you find on. the way you find it is by just googling RCH Kids Health Info, or yeah. So it's on the RCH webpage. You yeah. can go to it, but on any podcast platform for those who listen, Google, uh, Spotify, it's everywhere. How do you choo- how do you, did you choose the topics? Is it just kind of you think of, think them up, or did you think, yes. or did you get uh, do some research and think? and find out that these are topics that people really want to know about, like foreskin care. I wouldn't have thought of that being a really sort of um, uh, an issue that lots of people would want to know about, but clearly they do. Clearly they do. I was very surprised with that as well. So essentially we have Kids Health Info fact sheets from the Royal Children's Hospital that are exceptionally well regarded and used around the world. So for our first season, we looked at the top 10 information sheets. Right. Penis and foreskin care was right up at the top. Um, And, yeah, we decided to go on those 10 topics. So they were very medical and content-driven in the first uh, series. But in the second series, we started doing some consumer feedback. So our um, comms team asked parents what they want to hear about. We've now got a pod phone. People can ring in and ask questions and we... Um, actually play them and answer them live um, when we record. So we're really trying to find out what parents would like to know about mm. and that's where we've been focusing a lot more on development and teenage issues as well. Do you um, do you learn stuff on your show? Because one of the reasons I do radiotherapy <laughs> is because I learn heaps every Sunday. Seriously, I should be getting CPD points for this. Like, you know... I- Totally agree. I think, uh, look, I think medicos, we love learning. That's why, you know, Mm. we just absorb information. We get to have amazing experts. We've had experts, um, World Children's Hospital, but uh, um, medical Mm. health. And I'm totally curious and intrigued every time we interview them. And I think that's what I love about Mm. it. You're just in the moment. I am particularly on, you know, the anxiety episodes or the vaping episodes. My mind is ticking. I'm starting to think of what's happening in my house and what I should do, what I, how I can help my friends. Keep. Do, you, so do, I, do you surreptitiously sneak in a few questions of your own and they're kind of not – you just say, look, I've got a friend who's got da-da-da-da-da and they answer because I do that all the time on this show. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. It's, you know, particularly when you've got it like a, a psychologist there for yeah. free, you can ask all the, the hard questions. Um, so, yeah, no, we def- I definitely – we try and put in a lot of personal anecdotes yep. and stories from our, mm. sometimes our families confidentially. Mm. But myself, Anthea and Margie all have, I've got three, they've got four kids. So we're really coming at it as parents ourselves, mm. not just as fellow doctors. So we try and keep um, out of the content as much as possible and really just try and ask those what we think are interesting questions. I um, I went to this fantastic, uh, I guess it was uh, webinar or a talk by uh, Raf Epstein at our at our hospital where he was talking about um, how to communicate complicated issues and I'm wondering you know how do you do that because a lot of the stuff that happens with kids is actually really kind of medically it's quite complicated how do you decide you know how to pitch that and at what level and how much depth to go into I mean I mean how does that happen in your head 
Yeah, look, I, I would love to hear Raf's episode because I think actually the media and, and you know, other non-medical people do it a lot better than us in general. But I think we're fortunate as, as pediatricians, we have sort of, you know, two groups of patients. We have the child and we have the parents or the family. So in a consult, we're very used to getting down on the floor, playing and talking to the child in very simple, easy to understand language. Mm. And I think that's why the podcast has been a lot easier for us because as hosts, as parents, we're used to, you know, talking at what we think is sort of the child um, or young person's level and really trying to connect with them. Um, so we work very hard in the podcast to try and not use medical names, to not uh, reference a lot of research. Our producer every episode writes a list of all the words that we have to not use next time because um, it's hard as medicos when you're interviewing other uh, other health professionals to keep it um in language that is really easy to understand. But I think it's a skill like anything else. And I think that's been a really, you know, interesting skill to learn how to keep things simple and meaningful um, and relatable for parents and for kids who might be listening. Uh, Dr Lexi, I have a question about what you consider uh, a mature child. So in the context of there's some debate about whether children of anti-vaxxers can say, I want the vaccine, and is there an age or how do you um, target or define a child that's got um, the maturity to make a decision in a situation like that? Yeah, thanks. And that's a really good question and one that we've been having a lot of debate about on our PDF forums. Essentially, the two interesting questions, one is if you have a child who's or a young person keen for a vaccine but their parent is usually vaccine hesitant, occasionally anti-vax but more so vaccine hesitant. And the other question is what if you have a parent who wants their young person to have vaccinated but the teenager doesn't want to? When are they able to make that decision? But we might start with the first one because it's a more common question. Um, in Victoria, it's actually easy. So our Department of Health has deemed and written and instructed us that if we um, consider a young person a mature minor by law, then they are able to make their own decision and go ahead and get vaccinated without their parents' consent. And a mature minor is someone under 18 who is deemed capable of making that informed health decision for themselves so you do have to give informed they do have to give informed consent they have to understand the procedure such as the vaccine they have to understand the risks and benefits but actually they don't need a medical letter that they've made that decision they can actually go to a senior vaccinator immunizer which may be a health a doctor or, or, or immunization nurse um, if they deem them competent as a mature minor um, and then they can go ahead and vaccinate that that um, young person. And I think that's a really important step to give our young people autonomy. Um, the other question about if a adolescent or a young person refuses to get vaccinated but their parent wants them to is a lot more complex. And, you know, 
in the law would say that you potentially could force this young person to get a vaccination, but amongst our paediatric groups, and we've got ethicists from, you know, the UK and Oxford giving us their opinion as well, um, I think very few people would force um, or restrain a child or, or a young person to give a vaccine. I think it's a much better method to actually try and talk to the parents um, and the young person together and, and mediate and really try and understand them. Thank you so much, Dr. Lexi. That's so helpful for those of us in Victoria and around Australia. And just on the topic of vaccinations, we know that quite a lot of young people and adults might be needle phobic. And I'm wondering if you could please speak to how that could be managed to, to help people get past that and maybe get the vaccine if it's just the needle part that they're mm. worried about. Mm. Oh, Dr. G-Spot, I think I've, uh, no, that's a Dorothy Dixon because we've actually, um, Maggie and Anthea recorded an epi a podcast episode last week. It's not out yet, um, but with one of our emergency physicians and immunisation nurses exactly on this topic. I get texts and questions about this on a daily basis from friends, essentially trying to understand what the child is fearful of. So is it, are they fearful of the needle? Are they fearful of going to the doctor and really try and unpack that and understand what their anxiety is. Um, try and reassure them that everyone around them is going through this. It might hurt for a second, but it really, um, you know, really so they understand the process. The, uh, the Royal Children's is actually videos on what having an immunisation looks like and I think that's really good for a young person who's needle phobic. Asking them where they choose to have that vaccine. So we're going to go ahead and do this. Would you rather have it at your GP? Would you rather line up at one of the vaccination hubs? Would you rather come into hospital? The majority of kids with the right coaxing and conversation can go ahead and get that. You can... Um, you know, use relaxation exercises, uh, visualisation. Some hospitals have virtual reality and I think that's amazing and that's what we're moving towards. There's some research going on. So kids putting on goggles and, you know, being distracted, mm. taking them to another world mm. while they're having the vaccine. So there's options for that in some places but still unfortunately a bit limited. Um, but distraction's great. I mean, at the Royal Children's we have clown doctors but, you know, if you're going into an immunisation centre, grab an iPad, this is the time you can mm, let your kids mm, do it, mm. try and do a really interactive game. The needle's very quick, it's over, give them a treat afterwards. Um, but it's really, you know, I think it's really important to understand their fears but move beyond that because, you know, kids do need or would benefit from vaccines for the rest of their lives. Do you know my favourite part about being vaccinated? Have a guess. The lollipop. lollipop. The chupa chup at the chupa end. I, I, you know, I spend the whole time, you know, whilst I'm in there and they're taking my name and, you know, doing all the things, rolling up my sleeve, thinking about what flavour chupa chup I'm going to have afterwards. And then I finally get the Coca-Cola one. And I just, it is such a great, because the expectation is, you know, I'm going to get something as a reward after this so you can focus on something positive. Lexi, look, the, tw the last 15 minutes has just flown by. Like, it's just gone so quickly. We're going to ask you to hang around for the rest of the show, if you wouldn't mind. We're going to play some sponsorship announcements and then we'll be back for some more radio therapy here at Triple R Radio. <laughs> Stay with us. Have a listen to these. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. And joining us is... Dr. Janet Towns. Syphilis Queen. Syphilis Queen. <laughs> um, Janet, I um, just love the area uh, of uh, syphilis because I really love some of the famous people that have had syphilis. So you, we, we, most people would know about Henry VIII and, and Karen Blixen got it as well. So she's the author of uh, Out of Africa. But there's a, a whole list of really interesting, famous people, mostly men, who've had um, this pretty yucky disease. So uh, uh, let's kick off by asking you, Janet, how did you get your, – you're a medico. How did you get into this area of, of health? It's fantastic to be here. Um, It's a long story. I had a microbiology background, so I worked in microbiology laboratories for about 11 years after I left high school and then went into medicine late. Uh, Initially did my general practice training, and during my general practice training, I did a special skills term at the Melbourne Sexual Health Centre and absolutely loved it. Um, I also, my late husband was a pathologist with an interest in syphilis. So I had the the experience from the clinical perspective and he had the laboratory perspective. And then I went off on a tangent and worked in clinical forensic medicine for a few years and was doing dual training in the forensics and in sexual health medicine. After that, it came round to PhD time and there seemed to be a black hole of um, syphilis research being done. So that seemed to be the logical topic. So I launched into my PhD and it was, it's just been absolutely fascinating. So that's how I got into it. Oh, wow. So why don't we just go kick off and talk about syphilis and what it is and how you get it and how it's transmitted? So syphilis is a sexually transmitted infection and it's spread by skin to skin contact. So, um, Any sort of sexual contact, oral sex, vaginal sex, anal sex, can all spread syphilis. And it's a disease that can have distinct stages. There's the primary syphilis stage where you have the primary lesion that incurs at the site of infection or inoculation. And then that can become latent and have no symptoms. And then the secondary stage emerges, and that is typically with a rash over the body, And then those symptoms will resolve, and this is without treatment, and then you can be in another latent phase and still be infectious. And without treatment can persist in the body for many decades. Mm. And then you get the the tertiary syphilis, don't you, which is the one that it can infect your brain and it causes, is it tabes dorsalis? This is coming back to me from medical school. Is that right? That's correct. But you can also have um, syphilis affecting the brain in the primary and secondary stages. So even in early infectious syphilis, and in Australia that is defined as of less than two years duration, you can have neurosyphilis. And there has been um, a lot of neurosyphilis cases, particularly ocular syphilis. And because the syphilis bacteria disseminates around the body within 48 hours of infection, Mm. then you often see neurosyphilis in the early stages of syphilis and which is distinctly different to that late syphilis infection with the tabes dorsalis. What, what, sorry, um, Penn, what, just, can you remind, well, me, but the listeners what tabes dorsalis actually is? Uh, it's when the posterior columns of the spinal cord are affected 
by syphilis. Now, I'm not an expert in tertiary syphilis because I've never seen a case. Oh, really? Um, yes. You haven't seen a case? And it, so it's not obviously not that common, common in Australia then? No, I would imagine it will become more common as the we get further and further through the epidemic. Right, right. But what we're seeing are mostly cases of early infectious syphilis, and we do see some cases where we've got no idea how long the person has had it, but I've never seen a case of tertiary syphilis. In our society, we use a lot of antibiotics, ah. and a lot of them will have incidental anti-syphilitic activity. So that's probably contributing to the fact that we're not seeing the tertiary syphilis. Now, if you talk to an infectious disease physician that sees patients with dementia, you might find that they have seen Uh, more cases. But um, I certainly haven't. But we do see a lot of primary, secondary and early latent syphilis. So I'm just going to talk to your paper that's been recently published. So This is a group, maybe you can talk more about it, that it's a group of men who have sex with men and they've come to the Melbourne Sexual Health Clinic over, um, looks like about six years, and you collected 246 patients and of which 200 were eligible. So can we backstep that? So I'm, I'm... Pretend I'm a young man and I've got a funny lesion on my penis and uh, someone says, you better go and get that checked out. What are, what's the process of going to Melbourne Sexual Health? How do, you, how do, how do we find out about Melbourne health, Sexual Health? What's... A lot of it is word of mouth or people Googling and they see that there's a sexual health clinic in Melbourne and they would turn up at um, our doorstep and say that they've got some symptoms. Um, everyone is... Uh, triage by the triage nurse and you know when someone says that they've got a penile lesion then they would you know if we can possibly see them they'll be triaged in to see a clinician on that day our standard practice is to we get all the clients to fill out a questionnaire an electronic questionnaire and that gives us an idea of what their risk group is are they a heterosexual man are they a, a man who has sex with other men and they'll get last of ask lots of questions about their condom use and number of partners, that sort of thing. When they get in to see a clinician, you obviously want to examine the lesion, but you're also asking about any other symptoms. Do they have a rash on the body, any neurological symptoms? And we would use a PCR test, and everyone will be familiar with PCR tests because of COVID. Mm -hmm. So it's a test that's directly detecting the DNA of the syphilis bacteria in that lesion. We'd always also do a herpes Uh, PCR test as well because the two diseases Mm -hmm. can look very similar and Mm. are often clinically um, mixed up. So we we take a swab. We also do their syphilis serology and we get that sent off. So if we think that clinically it looks like syphilis and if it's a suitable type of lesion, we can even take some fluid from the ulcer and have our laboratory staff look at it down the microscope to do a dark ground microscopy. So sometimes we can get an indication on the day But if we think it looks like syphilis, we'll be recommending treatment on the day. And that would normally be um, an injection of a long-acting penicillin, benzathine penicillin. And um, that constitutes for early syphilis. That's all you need, just the injection on the day. Wow, that's pretty good. What if you're allergic to penicillin? Um, There are uh, not many options, to be truthful. There is doxycycline, which um, is fantastic, but it's a two-week course of antibiotics. We used to be able to use azithromycin, which is a macrolide antibiotics, but there are very high rates of macrolide resistance with over 80% um, resistance in some settings. Just to follow up to that question, 
Um, do you send those patients off to have their antibiotic uh, allergy checked, the penicillin allergy checked because the, of the delabeling de- process? If we have someone like a pregnant woman or someone who's very penicillin allergic but and they can't take doxycycline, then, yes, we do refer them for desensitisation for penicillin, and that's often done, might, might be done in hospital. Dr G-Spot? Uh, thanks so much, Dr Janet. It's very reassuring to know that if someone has symptoms, they can easily go to the Melbourne Sexual mm. Health Clinic. It seems like syphilis is on the rise, and I was wondering if you could speak to some statistics and also why we think that might be. Okay, this is a really interesting question because syphilis is not a new disease. There's anthropological evidence that it's existed for 2,000 years, and then there was a massive outbreak in the late 15th century when Christopher Columbus and his crew brought it back to the New World. And then it raged out of control for decades because there were no effective treatments. So if you look at the last 100 years, there was a massive spike around the time of the Second World War when all the young men that were going off to war didn't want to die virgins, so they went out and had sex. Mm. Um, Penicillin was introduced in the late 1940s, so then the case numbers came right back down and stayed low until you get to the swinging 60s and the sexual liberation of the 1970s and cases started to rise came down again in the 1980s with the AIDS era and stayed really low because of the fear of um, people catching HIV and condom use increasing. But then from 2000, it started to come up and it's at very high levels now and that's driven by the condoms not being used as much but also the effect of antivirals for HIV treatment and prevention. And then you've got to think of the geosocial networking apps like Grindr and Tinder, and there's a lot of people out there having casual sex. So there is huge numbers at the moment. Now, it has been in our setting and other high-income countries, predominantly in men who have sex with men who have been disproportionately affected by syphilis infection, but now you've got crossing over into women and heterosexual men and we're seeing the re-emergence of congenital syphilis cases as well, mm. which is really worrying because mm. mm. it's got a very high um, fetal um, loss and abnormality mm. rate. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, your open sentence of this paper is syphilis remains a global health problem with an estimated 6 million new infections worldwide from 2016. That's a staggering... Yes, and that's five years ago. Yeah, staggering figure. Mm. So so how do we prevent um, syphilis and what are the strategies to... It's very tricky because, sorry, it's very tricky because like all sexually transmitted infections, syphilis has asymptomatic periods, periods where people have no symptoms, are unaware they're infected and may be infectious towards others. So condoms help. Um, They do decrease the transmission rates, but not completely because you might still catch it by oral sex or um, by that skin to skin contact in an area of the body that's not covered by the condom. Um, Early detection is key. And in my paper, we showed that the secondary syphilis stage had the highest rates of the detection of the syphilis bacteria. So what we want to do is prevent that secondary syphilis stage. So we want early treatment and detection um, of syphilis. So it all boils down to the thing we need most of all is good access to care and access to treatment and health services. And in Melbourne, we have one sexual health Centre, so we're incredibly busy. In Sydney, for as a comparison, they have 10 sexual health centres. So we do need to improve access. 
And for people to be aware, uh, if they're sexually active people, then they should be having a syphilis test every year and that will pick it up early. Does that include women? Uh, Yes, absolutely, I believe that. Hmm. Mm. It's particularly uh, worrying, I guess, Janet, that there is that, that... that chronicity of infection when you can be infectious and yet not show any overt signs, as you were saying. So between the primary infection when you might get a sore or something and uh, secondary uh, secondary infection, secondary the secondary stage, you, you, you can't tell, can you? I mean, if some, I mean, just by looking at somebody. No, you can't tell by yeah. looking at someone who's got syphilis and who hasn't. Yeah. And yeah. you can be infection before <clears throat> infectious before the primary lesion emerges, sure. between yeah. the primary and secondary stage, and also after the secondary stage. Yeah. Wow. Dr. G? I'm just um, thinking off the top of my head, Dr. Janet, I'm wondering if people are going to their GPs for their COVID vaccines, maybe they could be tested for STIs and syphilis at the same time. I think that's a fabulous idea, Dr. G Spot. Um, you heard do... it first here on radiotherapy. It's a really good time now that we're sort of you know, peak COVID and we'll get into a post-COVID phase. So people are more aware of perhaps of seeing their GP and we need to take the opportunity for sexual health care at, you know, all GP visits and always, you know, don't just have a chlamydia test. Go and have a syphilis test as well. Everyone that has, has an STI checkup has to, should have a syphilis test and a HIV test as well. So um, opportunistic screening is very important. So, and I've got a question. So I've got the phone number for the Melbourne Sexual Health Unit, which is in the city. So it's 1-800-750-111. Are people bulk billed when they go there? Is it like, is it a scary thing to go to a Melbourne Sexual Health Clinic? It's a free confidential service. You don't need a Medicare card. If people have one, that's fantastic. The laboratories can bulk build the pathology test, but you don't need a Medicare card. And there's lots of people in our society that don't have a Medicare card. They might be refugees, migrants, um, overseas students that are not Medicare eligible. So, so how, uh, how, how are you funded then if you don't bill through uh, Medicare? Gov- yeah, government funding. Alfred, it's under Alfred Hill. Oh, right. Yeah. So, all right, that's interesting. Okay. Mm. Yeah, that's that's so um, free doctor visit, free pathology, free medication. We see everybody. Terrific. I I can imagine having worked in that area for a while, you would see people from every single social strata, from every single occupation, um, and that pretty much I I imagine a part of people coming along would be embarrassment, shame, Mm. um, feeling, uh, I guess, like they don't want people to know. How do you deal with that? as a physician, I mean, how do you overcome that hesitancy? What do you say? What do you do? Sexual health does attract um, a certain type of person. We're very non-judgmental and mm. we make the clinic a very welcoming place. And often people don't want to talk about this to their GPs, but mm. they'll come and talk to us about it. So, you know, then there is a lot of stigma around STIs, often about syphilis. Mm. So reassure people, you know, you haven't done anything bad by catching syphilis. They've done the right thing. They've come in for treatment. Treatment can cure the disease. And there's a lot of reassurance that mm-hmm. we do and normalising of, you know, the process. And, you know, if someone needs an examination, we explain what the examination involves, why it's necessary. Um, if we need to, we can refer people to our sexual health counsellors. Dr G. Smart. 
I was just going to say, Dr. Janet, do you get people sort of doing a lot of word of mouth, like, you know, one person in their social group turns up and they say, I had a great time at the Melbourne Sexual Health Clinic. Maybe they even got a lollipop, um, like with the vaccine. Maybe that's something. Uh, just wondering, like, how the how the word can sort of spread within people who are already coming. So, yes, people do tell their friends or they might come in with their friends, like mm. a group of no, friends, one person might have some symptoms and say, someone says, you better go to the sexual health centre, we'll come along too and support you. It's tricky doing during COVID because people have to wait outside the clinic and come in when it's their time to be seen so they're not sitting together in the waiting room. But we often see people that come in together or maybe they come in with their partner and they both want to get tested and treated. You know, I'm interested in, in the stigma uh, behind people having particular types of illnesses and STIs, sexually transmitted illnesses, are, are one of those because there's a. I guess there would have been a historical uh, association of uh, morality or of uh, religious uh, punishment for people that get the STIs compared to I don't know if you if you got I don't know a cold or if you got pneumonia or if you had a broken leg. I mean, there's no well, there's very little moral stigma attached to that. And I'm just wondering, are there, I mean, I've seen some great uh, public health messages for uh, STI prevention. Can you tell us some of the stuff that you've been involved in or that you've been aware of that actually helps break down that some, some of that stigma, just to make people feel that there isn't a, a moral meaning attached to getting, a, to getting an STI? Um. It's very true. There is a lot of stigma. Often mm. it's about syphilis. And we just try and normalise it. Mm. Uh, we have mm. a website called Let Them Know mm. and there are videos there you can watch to how to tell your partner you've got chlamydia or whatever and just reassure people that, you know, sexually transmitted infections don't discriminate on basis yeah. of race, religion, anything else. So normalising it, reassuring the person they're in the right place is the most important thing and not... And there's no one judgmental at Melbourne Sexual Health Centre. I remember seeing some posters. I'm wondering if they're still there down Chapel Street, these great posters of um, some young blokes and um, there was a yeah. photo of their jocks and they're saying, oh, I've got niche down there or something. And I thought that caught my eye. That made me think. And it really just made me think, well, anybody can get an STI. You know, there's, there's, it, it, there isn't a, um, a kind of a, a moral value attached to it. And, you know. That's I right. thought that was just fat, what great advertising that was. It really uh, caught me. I know that campaign. That's the Drama Down Under campaign. The Drama Down Under. Yeah. yeah. They do some, some fabulous imaging and it's so open and out there. And when you compare it to the public health posters of 100 years ago, which were full of shame mm, and mm. fear that mm. were, you know, messaging. Mm. Um, so it's, you know, and those messages the drama down under, they're targeted at uh, men who have sex with men. So we need to get those messages out into other groups yeah. in, uh, you know, to young women, young heterosexual men as well. So we need to widen the advertising campaigns to um, address or to target more at-risk groups. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Janet, it's been an absolute delight talking to you. We're going to ask you to hang around as well because... I imagine robots can't get syphilis. Maybe they can. I'm sure, maybe they could get viruses, some sort of computer it. virus. Yeah. Um, or they might be able to well, spread maybe, it or maybe as a fomite. It depends how clean they are. Yeah, that's true. Well, we're going to ask you to comment on this because our next guest will be talking about sex with robots. Thank you so much, Dr. Jenna Towns, syphilis queen. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. 
Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform. It is my great pleasure to introduce our audience to Maddie McCarthy, who is from my alma mater of Flinders University. Lovely to have you on the show, Maddie. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. I'm so glad. And just wondering, Maddie, could you just very quickly tell us about your background and why you got into that area? Yeah, sure. Um, So my my background isn't very long. Um, I have studied uh, law and accounting at Flinders University. I graduated this year, so I finished at the end of last year. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. And um, for my honours year, which was last year in law, I well, I basically researched the regulation of sex robots, and that was the topic of my uh, honours dissertation. And um, that's not the that's not the area that I'm working in at the moment. I work for a, a corporate law firm, LK Law, in in the Adelaide CBD. And um, so, sex robots is not an area that we deal with. It's just kind of my extracurricular. Um, but I've continued working with my honours supervisor, associate professor Tanya Lehman from Flinders University on um, public publications around sex robots. That's so awesome, Maddie. And I'm just wondering, how did sex robots come onto your radar as even an extracurricular fun thing? Oh, basically, as an honour student, they they encourage you to pick a topic that's going to be uh, new and an area that you can contribute to that's not very well researched. And on top of that, I just wanted something that was going to interest me for an entire year of study. Um, So... (laughs) So I had like I had a few options, and I thought sex robots would be an exciting one. I do enjoy researching uh, topics that are a little bit taboo and that a lot of people don't actually really know about. So I also saw it as just an interesting um, area to contribute to the law on, considering it's emerging technology, and we're going to be um, confronted with a lot of emerging technology in the next few decades. Absolutely, Maddie, and I want to say congratulations on taking on such a, a, a taboo topic that others might not consider. I think that's probably why Dr. Mal asked me to lead this interview because my PhD was on cosmetic genital surgery, uh, also at Flinders, and so Dr. Mal said, what kind of graduates come from Flinders? And my answer is only the best, and that's why we have you on the show, Maddie. So just for people who aren't aware of, of what a sex robot is, could you please give us a, a definition um, just yeah, just to help our listeners. Yeah, sure. So um, you might have heard of just general sex dolls before. They, they there was inflatable sex dolls, and there's uh, more realistic looking sex dolls now. But sex robots are a step further than that. They have um, robotic features. They can be Bluetooth connected. You can basically customize every feature of them: the eye color, down to the appearance of the pubic hair and the areolas. Um, you can you can literally basically pick everything on them as well as their personality traits and being internet connected there's phone apps that you can actually communicate with them through so it's it's trying to really uh, replicate human experience Um, there's also other aspects of them that increase the realism like the appearance of veins beneath the skin or some can have a human-like body temperature so the whole idea is just to replicate humans as closely as possible that is so incredible, Maddie. I, I just wanted to pick up on more, like what kind of personality traits can they have? That sounds so interesting. Yeah, I'm. I, I'm not entirely sure. I don't. I don't have one. I'll just um, say that at the beginning. <laughs> but um, from a few websites that I've surfed through, it seems like that there's a lot of different um, characteristics that you can pick from them. Like some some are more submissive personalities. Um, others 
you know, it might just be that they're flirtatious or they're humorous or they're just a very caring personality. Like there's just it, they're just trying to um, give, I guess, users uh, the lay of the land in what they would like their robot to be like for them. I love the idea of like a kind of stand-up comedian sex doll. I think that sounds fantastic. Who doesn't love a funny partner? And, and you mentioned, Maddie, you don't have one yourself. Are these actually available in Australia? Like what's the deal in terms of being able to access this type of technology? So it's, um, it is it is available in Australia, except you're generally ordering it from overseas. Um, they're predominantly produced in um, in some Asian countries as well as in the US. One of the largest producers is in the US and um, I think a big impediment at the moment to access to them is that they are very expensive. Like they might be upwards of $8,000, $9,000 at the moment and especially the, the more realistic they are, the more expensive they are as well. So I wouldn't say that there's probably a huge number of them being purchased at the moment, but as you see with all technology, you know, as it gets more popular and the price goes down, the demand goes up. So um, in the future, there might be a lot more around. Absolutely. And and what's the um, intersection with law and sex dolls? Like, what was your honours project about? So in my honours dissertation, I was focusing on uh, broadly whether adult sex robots should be regulated. In Australia at the moment, uh, there is legislation that prohibits um, the importation or possession of childlike sex dolls. And so that's um, not necessarily looking at um, robotic versions that's just looking at um, sex dolls that look like children and have penetrative holes still um, and so there is legislation that yeah prohibits you from importing those from overseas considering that's generally where they're coming from and um, yeah in, and possessing them in Australia as well though that's I guess harder to tell once if they get past the border um, and my dissertation was looking at whether we should be applying similar considerations to adult sex robots based on some of the legal risks around those um, to give you a little bit more information on the legal risks around those, uh, in, in my research with Tanya, we were looking at the potential for sex robots to objectify and increase the risk of sexual violence against um, women in particular. And it, it could be the same for men as well. Just in, um, in general, it appears that sex robots are being purchased mostly by men and they're mostly female, the sex robots, or portraying females. Um, so... There's just a, there's the ability to create an unrealistic expectation about sexual, mm. sexual subservience and then that may lead to increased uh, sexual violence against women or just um, desensitising users to the harms of sexual violence. Mm. Mm. Mm, such important work. I'm going to throw over to Nurse EpiPen. Um, uh, Maddie, is there any situation where um, the sex robots might be helpful or useful? Yes, yeah, certainly there is. Um, in our article, we identified a lot of just general positive benefits that may come from sex robots. We found in gender imbalanced countries, um, as an example, China and India, where there's a much larger male population than there is female, that introducing sex robots might be positive in the way that it might uh, reduce the societal pressure on women in those countries to marry and have children. Um, it also might just have benefits in, in isolated environments, whether that was space stations or working remotely or just benefits in empowering the older population or persons with disabilities as well. Mm. And can you get a, are there any male sex robots? There are a few male sex robots, but if you look at the, the top sites for sex robots, you might find that there's 20 different versions of females and there might be one or two male versions. So I don't think the market is as popular for male sex robots at the moment. 
Mm, interesting. Thanks so much, Maddie. I'm going to throw over to Dr. Lexi now. Uh, Maddie, this, that's absolutely fascinating. I must admit I didn't know anything about sex robots and I'm really glad that there's legislation around um, not importing that for children. I think that's incredibly important. I, I, on um, Epi's question, I was wondering when they created sex robots, was it with the aim of pleasure or was it to actually help people who may have intimacy issues? Um, we'll certainly prevent syphilis with sex robots, but, you know, people, there are many people with sexual um, or intimacy issues. Is there a role for sex robots in that domain? I definitely think there is. And, and you'll see from the way they market these sex robots online that while they, they have all the sexual functions, they have all the penetrative holes, um, they also market them as being a, a sex aid or a companion. And I guess that's why um, with the robotic features, they enable them to have all these personality traits and the ability to communicate with them as well so that they can also be somewhat of a companion as well as a sexual partner. Um, I'll just hop in here. So do they talk? I know they can moan, but can they talk to the person, the, the male? Yes. Yeah, um, that's, and that's just part of the technological development. They're getting increasingly realistic all the time. Um, they, they have the ability to moan, their mouth can move, their eyes can move. And I think, like, while they might not be able to have this entire conversation with you that's just unprompted, I think through the use of the phone apps and the, blue, the Bluetooth connectivity that you can prompt some conversation out of them. Mm. Have you, ever, have you ever seen a, a movie, uh, Maddie, called Lars and the Real Girl? <laughs> yes, I have seen that movie. Um, that, yeah, I, I actually watched that during my honours year because I wanted to see um, the way that they approach that in that movie. And I guess that's, um, that's one example of the way that a sex robot could be a companion for somebody. Mm. It was an incredibly touching movie, just for people that don't know. Ryan Gosling was, I think, maybe one of his first roles played a young man who um, fell in love with uh, with a sex doll, I guess, or with a doll. Um, and it was normalised by his family. And it was a very, very touching, endearing portrayal of somebody who was lonely and, and was, was trying to seek out some connection with something. And it kind of it, it, it turned my mind a bit about to how a human being can have a relationship with something that's inanimate. Because, you know, that, 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 you know, so when I heard that you were coming on the show, the very first thing I thought of was that particular movie. Yeah, and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of different shows and movies that are touching on this sort of technology now as well. Like I've noticed, there's also a Black Mirror episode where they have um, where they consider the the ability to um, create a sex robot out of one of your a lost loved one or a family member. Oh, right. Sorry, it might not be a sex robot yeah. if it's a family member, um, but just creating a robot based on somebody that you've lost. So yeah. it's, it's definitely it's um, it's it's been considered a lot more in the media as well. And um, I was telling people this morning that I was coming on the show with you and somebody highly recommended it, and I haven't read it, but it's Ian McEwan's book called Machines Like Me. It's supposed to be beautifully written about this topic. So Yeah, I'll definitely, um, I'll definitely order that. I haven't heard of it, but it sounds up my alley. <laughs> you, you know, you would be the sort of person at parties, Maddie, that people would be queuing up to speak to. <laughs> I could just imagine. I mean... I mean, I imagine I'm walking through the front door and everyone's going, pss, pss, that woman over there, she does research on, on sex robots. Like all the questions. You, I mean, what do people ask you at parties and stuff? What, what are some of the weirdest questions you've been asked and some of the most interesting? Oh, I, I just think it's, it's a topic that I was surprised that a lot of people just have never heard of sex robots. Yeah. So I have had a lot of fun over the past year just dropping that into casual conversations um, 
just random facts that I know about the features that sex robots have. And people are like, what? That's a real thing. Um, But I've also just found it interesting from the perspective of now working in legal practice. Uh, We we do a lot of um, we do a lot of stuff where we mentor uni students or we might um, show them around the firm or tell them about what it's like to be a lawyer. And students coming from Flinders, sometimes they're like, oh, actually, I've read your article because um, obviously my co-author Tanya Lehman works for the Flinders Law School. So um, it's just interesting in that respect as well to see some students going, oh, yeah, actually, I read about that. So I'm just wondering, Maddie, what's next in this field? Like, where are you and Tanya taking this work? Uh, we are actually working on an academic um, an academic journal as well, so a much larger article than the one that was published in the Law Society Bulletin, and that will be uh, based on my honours dissertation still, but uh, just a lot more, uh, yeah, a lot a lot more analysis in that um, and more academic. Um, so hopefully, in the coming months, we'll have something else to discuss you, watch this space you might and even get suppose, some, sorry you go if you bet no i was just going to say you might even get some people wanting to talk to you about it um some focus groups about what the experience has been like yeah yeah i've had a few interviews and it's been it's been really interesting to discuss it with different people and to see all the interest in the topic and do you think we can expect changes in legislation maddie as, as a result of your work or at least working towards <laughs> that I hope so. I think at the moment I'm not, I'm not sure that it's really, um, you know, really on, in, on the cards just yet. But I think as the technology becomes more prevalent in our society, um, we will have to confront this topic at some point in the future. And the approach that Tanya and I have taken is basically that it's better to deal with these risks before they become serious in our society, um, as opposed to having the risk here and then going, oh, now we've got to deal with that. So um, hopefully... Hopefully the Australian government deals with this uh, sooner rather than later, but perhaps not just yet. So true, Maddie. I think we've seen, uh, I suppose, new technology, social media, what Mm -hmm. happens when we don't legislate it from the outset. It turns into a bit of a, I won't use the word, a bit of an interesting situation. I suppose I'm waiting for a sex doll to say, honey, I've got a headache. I wonder if that's (laughs) available. Not tonight. Um, (laughs) Maybe maybe teaching us some stuff around consent even. Yeah, well, that, that is that is one of the major problems because the sex robots are generally designed without the ability to say no. So um, it, it does raise issues about consent um, and whether that consent is even a factor when you're talking about a robot. Um, but then again, when you're talking about a robot that is so realistic mm. that it basically looks and feels like a human being. So um, there's some definitely very interesting ethical questions in the in the field. There, there certainly like, are. Maddie, that is just that is a topic ripe for an, an, at least an hour's worth of radiotherapy. So I'm going to ask you back on the show after you've um, published your latest uh, academic journal. Thank you so much, Maddie McCarthy. Brilliant, Thanks brilliant for having me. Uh, uh, topic. And thank you to the rest of our guests too. Thank you to Dr. Lexi Frydenberg, uh, Dr. Janet Towns. Thank you also to Dr. G-Spot um, and Nurse Ebby Penn. You've been listening to Radiotherapy. Hi, this is Panel Beta. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.